Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Fanzine Podcast. Just before we get started with the show, this is your host, Tony Fletcher. I want to invite you to sign up for the weekly newsletter over at tonyfletcher.substack.com. It'll give you updates on this podcast, my other podcast, all forms of recommendations with a midweek update, a long-form weekend read. Sign up is absolutely free. There are interview archives, uh, additional podcast features, and you will be able to to see uh, more of the fanzines that uh, we're talking about on this show. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. Thanks again. Now on with the pod. It's the jamming fanzine. Fanzine. Podcast. I mean, the thing about a fanzine was holding it in your hand, right? And looking at the way it had been put together and the punk way it had been put together, quite quite frankly. And it had a staple in it, you know, and and that was that is a fanzine, right? Do you wanna buy a copy of jamming? Welcome back everybody to the Jamming Fanzine Podcast, a podcast about fanzines. Not specifically about jamming fanzine. It has that name because I, being Tony Fletcher, put together a book compiling the best of jamming about a year and a half ago from uh, where we are right now in February 2023. Oh my God. And um, in doing so, put together a podcast to help promote it. And also in putting together that book, realized that I'm not the only one doing so, that there is definitely a resurgence of interest in the alternative press culture that was the music fanzines of the late 70s and 80s, not just in Britain, but really around the world. And also just that sense of do-it-yourself publications that uh, I think are having their own like little renaissance alongside sort of the vinyl and cassettes and the idea of something tangible as opposed to something that just sort of floats across your screen. Or indeed, like a podcast that just floats through your ears and then you can move on to the next one. But hey, really glad to have you on board right now. And uh, what we're doing here is I like to get a couple of people together in one conversation. I did that last time round with uh, Hamish and uh, Gavin, who put together the book, We Peaked at Paper, An Oral History of British Scenes. It was a great way to kick off this uh, new series, but really just carrying on the numbering. So this is episode 12 now. And in fact, the interview that I hear you're about to hear, I did before that one with Gavin and Hamish, but it seemed better to launch with that. And then to kind of take a deeper dive in the sense that uh, our, our guests today, which is Alan Ryder, or who are, I should say, Alan Ryder, and Graham Burnett have each put books together about the fanzine culture in their home cities where they themselves ran fanzines in the 80s and beyond, both of them. And they'll talk more about this. They'd never met before. I think we all knew of each other and hadn't met before. Uh, Alan's from Coventry and Graham is from Southend. And Alan's book is very much about that sort of punk, post-punk era of fanzines. Graham's spans a whole 50 years of Southend's alternative press culture. Uh, the books, obviously, you know, for that reason alone, have their differences, but they do have a lot of similarities. And um, what I really got from them both is just the, in terms of when they were talking to the other fanzine editors in their towns, that sense of, of energy and enthusiasm and the DIY sense that I can do this and this is great to be involved and obviously we can be a bit rose-tinted about our pasts and we, we get into that in the interview 
that follows. But the the books both like just abound with enthusiasm. And Alan has another book all about his own fanzine too, which he compiled, Adventures in Reality. So they've both got plenty to talk about and we are going to jump right in. In. I just want to let you know that now that I have this back up and running, I'm really pleased to say we've got some good people uh, say they're happy to get on board and be interviewed. They include Tony D, that's Tony Drayton, who put together the very influential Ripton Torn and Kill Your Pet Puppy. Tom Vague, who's got a book coming out of Vague magazines, or Vague fanzines, I should say. Uh, Mike Diskell from Toxic Graffiti. Karen Ablaze from Ablaze, of course. And more besides, lots more people besides, want to come on board, are happy to come on board. Probably got enough people, candidates to last a full year. It's going to be great. I'm glad to have you on board. You can find me, I don't know, go to TonyFletcher.net, find me from there and let me know what you want to hear or if you feel you should be on this show. Uh, As far as the interview that follows, um, very minimal edit. About the only thing I kind of cut out of it for time to keep the show under an hour was when we were talking about our own bands and record labels. All three of us, myself, Graham and Alan, all played music, continued to maybe play music, put out other people's records. And I think that was really prevalent in the fanzine culture. Uh, It was just a sense of, well, if I do this, I can do that. And maybe I should be doing that. And it was great talking about that. It got just ever so slightly tangential. I wanted to keep us more on the fanzine aspect of things. That's about all that bit the cutting room floor. I'll be back at the other end to give you some links and pick up on anything else I might have missed. But I know you're here for the conversation. So once again, welcome on board to the Jamming Fanzine Podcast. Welcome, Alan. Welcome, Graham. Uh, why don't you both introduce yourselves? And I'd like you to introduce yourselves. Um, Alan, I, I mentioned your name first, so you can go first. Can you tell me the name of the fanzine that you produced back in the day and um, the book or books that you have recently published? And then, Graham, after you. Lovely to have you. Lovely to okay, see you. Okay, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's um, great to be here. So I'm Alan Ryder. Um, I produced back in the day, so you're talking about back in 1980, a fanzine called Adventures in Reality, which was from Coventry, and uh, that went for about 13 different issues. Um, but there was a lot of other fanzines in Coventry as well, which we may come on to. So uh, the, the books, pl- plural, that I've done so far, uh, one on my fanzine Adventures in Reality, which is it's a kind of reprint plus. So it's all of the issues, all of the spin-offs and some spin-off fanzines, and also a little bit of the kind of backstories around them and around the local scene as well. And then there's another book which follows on that called Tales from the Ghost Town, which is about the other 50-50 fanzines that existed between 79 and and 85 and uh, collecting all those together and, and covering those. Wonderful. Thank you. Graham. Um, yeah, my name's Graham Burnett, and I did a zine called New Crimes from um, early 1980 to, I think it was about 84, the last issue. I think did about six or seven altogether. And the book I've just published, um, South End on Zine, um, kind of takes, um, it's kind of 50 years of 
fanzine and alternative publications from South End on Sea. So it kind of starts in like the counterculture era at the beginning of the 1970s, 71, and then goes through. So that kind of ancestry of the punk scene, I guess you could call it the antecedents, if you like, and then moves into kind of the punk era, but then kind of what happened after, um, moved more into kind of indie and then up to the present day, which tends to be sort of, you know, sort of riot girl, sort of queer, feminist sort of zines that people are putting out at the moment. So it's quite a, um, it's more of a longer timeline, perhaps. Than, it's a uh, considerably, considerably longer timeline. I've done one book that traced 50 years and I vowed never again. So uh, <laughs> you have you have my admiration and sympathy. Um, so I understand to some degree the attraction of putting together um, a compilation of your own fanzine because, hey, I did it myself over the last um, year or two. And it, uh, yeah, and I did. And that was jamming, of course. But uh, why did you each feel in separate places, so Coventry and South End, why did you each feel compelled to compile a compendium, yeah, all the seas together, of pretty much, you know, the, the entire city's alternative publication scene? Uh, what, you know, that's quite a task to take on, and, and you both done it at a very similar point in time. So what was the, what was the inspiration for each of you? For, for you, Graham, you can go first this time. Um, for me, um, I guess there's always been this, there's these myths, as as all towns have, you know, there's all these kind of stereotypes and myths. And for where I live, South End on Sea, it's all about um, Towie and the archetype of the Essex girl and the Essex, the Essex man and the white van man. And, uh, you know, everybody's kind of a wannabe gangster and, you know, and I wanted to kind of provide a different narrative, really. Um, I think really the, the the spark was I went to actually a talk by um, a local um, event. Um, I don't know if you know the journalist Tim Burrows, who writes for The Guardian. He's published books about kind of Essex culture and all that kind of stuff. And there was a Q&A at the end and a bit of a discussion about um, this whole um, seaside cultures and the cultures of South End and similar places and why do they have these stereotypes attached. And there's truth to that stereotype, definitely. You know, if you if you spend any time in South End, you'll see those. You know, those people are very real. They're about. But there's this. And I just want to say, well, actually, there's this other narrative. There's this other history of South End, and you know, artists, musicians, filmmakers, poets, all sorts of people from South End, and. In the Q&A, it's like, well, where is this documented? All these wonderful things you're talking about. Where is it documented? And I said, well, it'd be in like the fanzines and the um, alternative publications people made over the years. And I, well, where are these collected then? Can you can you see them anywhere? Is there are they in a book anywhere? And I was like, oh, I, I suppose I suppose that'll be me then. <laughs> and that that was kind of the spark that you know it's that thing you know. I get that. If you want a job done, do it yourself. You I, know? So I, that was the, the impetus. Yeah, I very, very much get that. Sometimes you do walk around and go, why has nobody else done this? And after a while of walking around asking that question, you realise that the universe is telling you it's it's your task. Uh, Alan, was, was that, is this, does that sort of ring bells to you? I mean, yours is a more concentrated period, as you mentioned already. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely in awe of ground uh, spanning 50 years because that's a, a lot. It took me a long time just to get together uh, about you know five or six years worth of of, of fanzines. But I, I do actually agree very much with what Graham said about stereotyping of of the nature of a town. So obviously Coventry, different to Southend, musically is two-tone and that's all people think of. It's just like Scar Town and that's been reinforced a little bit by it being City of Culture last year, which again focused very much on that aspect of it. But there was a lot more, more going on and also personally, you know, being involved in that scene, I felt uh, a little bit annoyed that um, that, that you know that's all that people focused on really that they don't only focused on the two-tone side and I knew there was more going on and more going on in the post-punk um, era which was very broad very varied um, not all, just music it kind of touched on lots of satire as well but also fanzines in general are I think as Graham said you know they're kind of voice from the streets there they tell you the, tr- the true story quite unfiltered and irreverent as well so that they don't worry about upsetting people they just say it like it is and sometimes deliberately so um and and also they're very fragile they're then were never intended to be books and to to persist they were disposable throwaway photocopied things some of them were produced in formats that, that basically faded you know that some of the old wet copy photocopies don't last very well at all so every time a garage was clear was cleared out or loft these things got thrown away and once they're gone they're gone forever so I felt that uh, if I didn't do it they'd all be gone and all the people that produce them would they're all getting on a bit so some of those would be gone as well so um, it, it had to be kind of kind of captured and there seemed to be the interest and um, I seemed to know enough about it so off off I went you know and it was kind of building on what I'd done with my own fanzine compendium previously as well. Yeah and <clears throat> I totally understand what you're saying about um, the scene in Coventry having just like so much um, uh, people associate it so, so much with two-tone. It's bound to come up. I mean, I do notice in your book, I think you wrote this as part of your own um, contemporary commentary, that it was bizarre at the time that the specials were such a big national group, but you'd see them in the pubs uh, or the clubs locally. And, You know, I realize that probably overshadowed a lot of what else was going on, and there there would have been a lot going on. And similarly, uh, you mentioned, uh, Graham, that South End is known for, um, well, Essex is known for the Essex, you know, caricatures. But, you know, there's also people think as, as South End, they go straight to Canvey Island and Dr. Feelgood. Um, and you've documented uh, in your book, uh, Graham, you know, that, that so much more has gone on historically. So I would, I would imagine, I would posit that to some extent you are, you're both. I mean, I think you already said you're both really reclaiming your locales, your your home cities, as being more and more varied than what they're known for. Correct. Definitely. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Good. So I read yeah. uh, both. Both of you have. It's it's really interesting that that, that it's been done this way. You've both. Um, track down other fanzine editors or alternative publication editors and uh, conducted Q&A interviews in the classic fanzine format. And then you've each, by the looks of it, had somebody else interview you about your own experiences uh, rather than uh, fake it and ask yourself the questions. And I read, uh, I've read the bulk of the interviews in both books, but I've certainly read both of your own. So I have a bit of knowledge of what I'm about to ask you, but I'd, I'd like to uh, also ask you, and then we're going to jump in more to the individual fancies. What inspired you uh, to start your own zines? 
I know fanzines were ongoing, but that doesn't mean everybody is going to do one. Um, so, and, and actually, uh, Alan, you started in 79. What year did you start, Graham? Um, I probably started putting it together late 79 when it came out yeah. early 80. Yeah. Right. Okay. Very, very similar. Well, well Alan, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Uh, what, what actually was the final, you know, what was, what was the real, the real push that you said, I'm going to do one of these fanzines? So I, I think it was, um, because when I first came across local fanzines, I'd I'd, I'd seen national fanzines before, you know, I'd, I'd obviously sniffing glue and all those, the, the more famous London-based ones largely, but I'd never seen a local one. And there was one called Alternative Sounds, which is doing by a guy called Martin Bowes, who's now in, in the band Trition, has been for many years. Um, but he he produced a, a local fanzine that was, that was very big and I'd not seen one before. I saw it around a friend of mine's house after school, went and bought it and then, he was just inviting people to write for it. So I started to write for it. And um, to me, you know, journalism used to be something that you had to have like, you know, go to the right school, Oxbridge degree to, to do. It seemed a bit out of reach, but that's this was, uh, you know, quite empowering for me. Um, and it seemed quite easy to do. So uh, other people were starting our fanzine and it was very much that kind of punk, post-punk, do it yourself um just get off your ass and do it kind of thing so that that was the impetus was to do that but also it was um self-expression as as well i mean my fanzine when it started it was very basic it didn't even have a typewriter it was handwritten i love that the early um, issues were handwritten i i love that i saw yeah. that in the book and it, it really made me smile it really did so very very basic i guess we were your own uh, uh publication tony you know jamming looked very different at the end than it, than it did at the start it definitely evolved some of the very first issues that you know that they they had you know quite a lot of parallels i think with what we, what we were doing and then obviously it went a bit more upmarket afterwards but um yeah so it's it's really that really just doing it yourself and self-expression but also for me it was doing something a bit different so i tended to not have on the cover, what was inside, um, you know, issued them alphabetically rather than numerically. So a little bit arty, I guess, but it was just trying to have a bit of create, creative fun with it. Yeah, well. and I was very aware of both fanzines at the time. I was I was always, uh, you know, jamming would often, you know, do a fanzine roundup. I think every fanzine would do a fanzine roundup. The names of adventures yeah. and reality and new crimes came right back to me. But actually, Alan, I hadn't uh, realized in the grander scheme of hundreds and hundreds of different fanzines that you had, you had done a bunch of these things, like your issues were A to B to C to D. You had a cover artwork that had basically nothing to do with what was inside and some kind of like found piece of art. Uh, as you mentioned, the first couple were handwritten just out of necessity. They're very readable hand, handwritten. and um, and then on top of that, you gave a gift away, didn't you? But a, a, a kind of daft gift with every issue. Yeah, that, that 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 was a kind of a theme. So I think one of the first issues, some of them were just like simple photocopied posters, which was a bit dull, to be honest. Uh, but then I started to do things like tea bags, which were stapled to the sleeves, so they wouldn't have been terribly usable if you'd managed to get them off. And I think in the second issue, I said that if you like coffee, one of the pages was impregnated with coffee, so you could tear it out and pour hot water on it and have a lovely cup of coffee. That was complete lie, of course. I don't think anybody ever ever tried that. And we had things like toffees and stuff which tended to melt and stick to it. So a lot of these things weren't terribly practical. 
Um, but like a lot of people, I used to get things to review singles, and sometimes I used to just put them randomly in, into them. So I'd, I don't even know what each issue had in it. You know, I've only got the ones that I, I've kept for my own purposes um, of exist out there. And a lot of the time, you know, as, as you, you read in, in the book, they were sealed up inside like plastic and paper bags. So you, you couldn't even see what was inside. The poor old reader had to buy them on trust. And and they did, thank God for that. But um, they they did manage to, you know, trust me that it was worth buying these lucky bag kind of approaches. Yeah, I think it's actually a, a really good sort of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a, a, it embodies both the uh, irreverence of a fanzine and the, art, the artistic kind of instinct of a fanzine. So the irreverence can be artistic and, and the sort of punk rock spirit sort of all wrapped up in one uh graham you started like a really really similar time you were you, you were saying uh was there a specific inspiration for you um yeah i mean it's quite interesting um like pre-fanzine era you know i was writing the school magazine you used to write these like, horror stories and science fiction so i had that kind of always had that kind of interest or passion and used to do some bits for some of the other magazines that are mentioned in in my book um but I think the real impetus was, um, in, you mentioned Dr. Feelgood and the whole Dr. Feelgood thing. And I think there's an irony because Dr. Feelgood and Wilco Johnson, they kind of formed as a reaction to that kind of mid-70s, you know, prog rock and Yes and Genesis and Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Was it music for Hobbits or something like that that um, Wilco famously said? And, you know, and against kind of overproduced music from California and that. So they kind of were, you know, and the whole pub rock things and reactions to that. But living in South End on Sea by the late 70s, it was like every pub in South End would have like a third rate, you know, bands doing kind of copies of like that Dr. Feel Good, you know, R&B thing. And me and my mates, we were going to like, stop and go to punk gigs and post-punk gigs. And, and we kind of, we were kind of reacting against, the pub rock thing, which was, you know, really um, Thames Delta scene, as it was called. So that kind of gave us the impetus. And it was um, first, you know, there was a local record shop, actually. And I know you, it was the issue of jamming that covered Speedball. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm not sure. Then, and that was one of the very first fanzines I ever bought, actually. I think I bought Sniffing Gloom, maybe. In my head. It was close together, but looking at it, there was actually a couple of years apart. But you know, yeah, they mean, couldn't have been. It would have no. been a minimum of eight, eighteen months, pretty yeah. much. Yeah, but in my mind, it was very close together. But definitely, it was one of the few shops in South End we could buy fanzines, and that record shop also produced the Speedball. It was they ran the label. Was it No Pack Records that the Speedball record single was on? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so seeing jamming actually was an inspiration. And also I'd go up to Rough Trade Records and Companion Books in London and pick up, you know, Toxic Graffiti and um, what's the other ones? Uh, what's Tony's one? Rips and Torn. Kill Your Pet Yeah, and all, all those. Yeah. Cobalt Hate and all those. And I think it was me and my my pal, we, we both had office jobs. We worked in the tax office in South End, different departments. We meet up at lunchtime and say, hey, let's do our own fanzine. And I think that was... You know we can do this and then we don't have to kind of you know you know we can write about the bands we're excited about you know the punk bands who are our peers that were playing in like the local youth club and this kind of thing so that i think was the impetus that's what 
kicked it off. Yeah, there's a there's a couple of things there. I did read in your interview you said you used to buy sniffing glue and jamming, and I just thought, oh yeah, you know, we uh, relatively. I mean, uh, jamming was a fraction of of sniffing glue at the point you bought that issue. I had no idea it was that that much of an inspiration. Um, I think it was it was possibly just after that issue, uh, the one with speedball. Um, went to the printers that I spent that cra- a crazy weekend with Speedball, um, staying in Southend over the May Day bank holiday, that mod revival, uh, we- the year of 79. I wrote about it in Boy About Obviously. Town. I mean, I did speed... <laughs> I did speed for the first time. I was barely fifteen. <laughs> I uh, there. It was the most. It was the most ridiculous house. Guy Pratt wrote about it in big detail in his in, incredibly funny um, memoir. Uh, and, and oddly enough, I've got to confess to this. This is really strange because I'm. I spent a lot of time in the seventies and eighties going up and down the motorways and on National Express buses conducting interviews. Uh, other, I've been to South End Football Ground, but. Other than that weekend, I think that was my only time in South End. I hate to say, and this is really embarrassing, Alan. I think I could probably I can claim so many football grounds, so many gigs all over the country. I don't think I've been to Coventry. I'm not really embarrassed. I don't think I have. I don't I have no recollection. And no, it's actually it's very easy to get to from London as well because it's on the main line. It's before you even get to Birmingham. So, um, well, I must have been through it on the train. Does that count? Through it so, so many. Uh, I, guess, <laughs> I guess so. Uh, a lot of touring bands came through there, so you know you, you could see there was local bands. There was a lot of other bands and uh, the local scene. You know, it was I, I could go to five gigs a week, no problem at all. Um, being a fans in it, of course, meant you could blag free entry which was great because i would never be able to afford it otherwise but um uh yeah so it, it yeah I, to, to your eternal shame tony you, you've never been there i think um i, I but, have to correct that at some point yeah <laughs> i think my only time i've been to coventry was uh, i visited the um right and gardens the organic gardening uh headquarters where they've got big showgrounds that's oh, my no, only yes, time i've ever yes, been there the organic yeah. gardening place so Slight tangent to the whole fanzine thing, but uh, I mean, it, it has it has changed since it was very d- deprived when I was there, and it was it was a bit so ghost town, concrete jungle. All those special songs were quite descriptive of oh, yeah. what it was, and, and you know, coming back to specials, I think they did put a, a positive stroke, a positive negative focus, if you can say that. You know, they described what it was like at the time, and that. That environment actually fostered the creativity because tough times do seem to make people want to push back and kick back and and it, it stimulates them a little bit when it when it's when people are well off and comf- comfy they don't do so much you know they, they just sit back and uh, in, in, enjoy their, their comfortable lives so you do need a bit a bit of strife to actually get you up and going and we definitely found that during that whole period. Yeah, I think that's a really crucial point you hit on there, Alan. It's 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 absolutely essential because when when I look back on on it, and uh, we both started, we all sorry, all three of us started our fanzines uh, when there was just trying to think. Well, right when Thatcher got got in power for the for the first time, and then things went really really south and went really really bad. And yeah, I look back on that period as this sort of thriving post punk cultural period with all these amazing gigs, people putting out fanzines, people especially putting out their own records, and and we can get to that as well. So it's this weird mixture of violence on the streets, you know, um, 
but there were still plenty bomb sites in London. Um, you know, uh, I mean, there really, really were lots of rundown areas, uh, just sort of like danger lurking when you went to shows, violence, unfortunately, at the gigs as well as at the football. And yet also feeling like I had the greatest time. There was just so many shows to go to, so many records that would land on your doorstep if you ran a fanzine. Um, so much political discussion to have with with older people who would want to school you. Uh, so I look back on it as this amazingly sort of like dichotomy or, or contradiction. But uh, I, I, you know, on that on that note, I, I mean, I think it'd be fun for us to talk about the ups and downs of doing our our fanzines back in the day. But uh, Graham, I mean, for one thing, I, I know that the organic gardening is actually a big big thing of where you've ended up. But I think you're wearing what looks like if you were to sit back a bit. I think you are wearing is that. A logo it is it's the crafts logo hey. yeah it is indeed yeah yeah and uh... yeah so i i do believe crass was was very much um uh an influence on you or uh, do you want to elaborate yeah, on that definitely. were you, were you yeah. coming at new crimes from a sort of uh you know anarchy and peace um uh influenced by crass background Not initially because i've bought you know a couple of their records as you do and then, because they're very close to us, you know, um, as in physically, they're um, about 30 miles up the road, Dial House, you know, the Crass House. And so through, yeah, made contact with them and said, you know, can we come and interview you for our, our fanzine? And we kind of went up there to their place. And quite funny, my mum gave us a lift up there in her in her car, which was kind of quite funny, you know, not very punk at all. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, that's what happened. And we did the interview. And I think I was just so, and it, it was around the time, do you remember the album Bullshit Detector that came out? And it had like about 50 bands on that were tapes that had been sent to Crass. And I think that really influenced me as well. You know, this it really was, you know, you can do it, DIY sort of stuff. And it put, I think lots of people started writing to each other from then. I kind of, yeah, I did really get into kind of the whole Crass thing and, uh, Bought, bought into the ideology probably more than I should have, really. You know, in hindsight, you know, one's, you know, one gets into these things. Um, but, yeah, but I think the big takeaway for me with Crass was that, you know, was the whole thing. You can do it yourself. Believe in yourself. And, um, and I think that's led to, it led to the whole fanzine thing. It's led to so many other pathways in my life, I think. So I think I'll always uh, be grateful to sort of folks from crass for that stuff so yeah they were quite a big influence on me personally and, and obviously remain unless you've had the hoodie for 45 <laughs> years or something they they obviously remain well, yes, uh, a big they, part um, of your life yeah and still in contact i actually run obviously haven't for the last couple of years but was running regular um permaculture courses in their garden at dial house i still got that really strong contact there um yeah, they've remained good friends through the years. So I'm probably one of the few people that still goes to Penny Rambo's gigs. Uh, I do look back really warmly on the one day that we went out. We mm. took had to take uh, buses, tubes, and I think we, we they had to call them from a phone box to get directions at the end of the tube line. But we went out and uh, spent a day with them, and it, it left quite a big mark on me because I, I went there quite cynical, but my friends were into them, and I came out really quite converted. And I think it's worth noting that like way, way, way down the line um, – their influences extended musically way beyond the, the the crude punk rock that they were they were making. Um, I've been friends with the guys from Orbital, uh, massive Crass fans, and then 
I think another person who just comes to mind, uh, you know, Tim Burgess from Charlatans, you wouldn't necessarily make that connection. They, there were a lot of people who were really influenced by Crass and then went off and did their own musical thing, but they took that spirit with them. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm, definitely. And I think actually Crass were a lot more sophisticated musically than they were often given credit. I mean, if you look at their history, they actually came from the kind of hippie, they were doing stuff before they had antecedents and, uh, I kind of clicked that, even though this sounds on the surface like kind of quite rough, raw punk rock. There's all these kind of other things going on in the music. Yeah, there's kind of like drone effects they use and, you know, some weird time signatures. And I think, and I mentioned that to, when I interviewed Crass all those years ago, I said, you know, you've got kind of influences from people like John Cage and Stockhausen and stuff there. And I remember Penny Rambugs is quite used to giving, you know, the stock answers about, you know, anarchy and religion and the usual standard stuff and he kind of like really perked up and we had this quite a long chat about the musical influences and that so i think yeah there's a lot more sophistication there than they're always given credit you've, for you've correctly perhaps. put me in my place there when we um when we compiled <laughs> the jamming charts for uh, for uh, around the book or for somebody in the uk just said look i'll put together the spotify playlist for the readers charts and you put in the entire nagasaki nightmare uh, record. Yeah, it was like, well, there's no A side. So I put in a bunch of tracks. I think it was that one. And I listened through and I actually did rethink. Um, the, uh, you know, I did rethink. I was like, yeah, this is, this actually stands the test of time way better than I would have thought at the time. But that, I think that brings me to something that, that's, uh, that, that's worth discussing. You know, when you're, when you're, you're, you're that young, and I think, um, uh, Graham, you obviously had a job. I didn't get to ask how old you were when you started the zine, but you had a job. I think, Alan, you were similar to me. You were doing it in your mum's bedroom. I mean, you know, at home. Were you working at the point? Uh, but I think, actually, Hi. I mean, you're welcome to answer like what age you were when you you started. I think what I'm what, what I was going to lead to is, is we can be very particular about our tastes and get a little bit set in our ways. Like, uh, oh, I, I support this band and therefore that band's in opposition. But I thought it might just bring me to asking, giving you each a chance, and by all means, carry on just like you know riffing off each other about bands that you loved in your hometowns and wrote about that actually never ever made it. Um, because that's a part of what fanzines do, isn't it? They champion local bands, and we we all know there's a lot of reasons bands make it, and most bands don't make it at all. So then maybe that's a chance to talk talk about that. But it's actually worth checking. Were you just? I know you were uh, in your teens. Were you working, Alan? Uh, no, um, I, I, I was I was living at my mom's. I I, I did a uh, an art course at the local. Uh, polytechnic there and then and then, and then I, I, I went on on Sladol, um as did most of the people I know so we didn't have a lot of money but kind of referring back to what we we're saying about the Thatcher era um, the fact that you could go on the dole and weren't really expected to get a job because there weren't any and there wasn't a terrible lot of checking up now now you'd get the third degree um, and you wouldn't be able to do anything without declaring it or or getting your, your money chopped then you could just literally sign on to sign a piece of paper and go away again and 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 do stuff and we publicize things locally that clearly the people that worked in the dole office would have seen those I even did a something was channel four documentary you know all they had to do was watch that and they'd see what i was doing and it wasn't wasn't looking for jobs it was doing fanzines and things like that um but nothing happened they, they continued to pay so that culture i think of being being on 
uh, on, on the dole with basically not very much money, but also no expectations of having to do a day job meant that you could just immerse yourself in that. And everybody you knew was doing exactly the same as well. So that created a very strong scene, which was very localized. It was pre-internet. So actually breaking out of that was harder work. Um, but actually, it meant that the scene could sustain itself. You could do literally a tour of Midlands venues and, you know, you could you could do pretty well after it, actually. There were some good good venues there um, without really ever breaking out of, of a quite small area. You wouldn't be able to do that now. Yeah, people went to gigs in, in droves. It was what you did as a kid. You went to gigs and probably formed a band as well, which we got to allow time because all of us did, did that. Uh, Graham, you're working in a tax office, but uh, yeah, favorite local bands, favorite local bands that never made it, uh, that maybe show up in in your books. Um, gosh, there's so many, really. Um, I think one of them was the Cynics would probably be the obvious one, who um, kind of anarcho, kind of punk sort of thing. Um, but they're very interesting because Paul Barrett, who used to come under the name of Alien in the band, he was also very much part of the skinhead culture, and he actually did one of the most interesting fanzines in my book. Him and another guy did a thing called Hard as Nails, which was like a skinhead fanzine. And at the time, skinhead culture was kind of, you know, it was the domain, that's the one. <laughs> it was kind of the domain of, um, you know, kind of the right wing, you know, the British movement, the National Front and all that. Whereas um, Paul and Ian, who were doing Hard as Nails, they were trying to pull it back to... Um, you know, what they considered the original skinhead values, you know, dressing sharp, uh, working class pride, listening to red gay and scar. And I think that was kind of quite influential in that scene, you know, with the sharp skinheads and the anti-racist and anti-fascist skinheads. So definitely the cynics, um, Cross Uprising, another local kind of punk band. That's kind of the punk era, but pre there was a lot, so much going on because I wasn't just going to, being slightly a little bit older, I guess I was about 18 when I started New Crimes. Um, obviously, I've been around, you know, year-round local music scenes from about 15, something like that, 14, 15. So it's got like folk clubs, jazz clubs, avant-garde. Um, so, yeah, I had very diverse musical tastes, you know, very much. There was a band called Red Square who appear in my book. They were kind of... Um, they were three-piece, they were electric guitar, sax and drums, and they were just totally free improvised. They used to just make as much noise as possible. And they were very kind of, they were quite confrontational. You know, they'd play and, you know, people would heckle them and they'd just give them grief back and they'd shout back and people would throw stuff at them and they'd throw stuff back. And, and this was all pre-punk, you know, this was like 75, 76. And, I used to love that. That was great, you know. And it was almost like when punk came along, pistols and all that. Yeah, but these guys been doing that, you know, for like two years already. Um, yeah, and I think post-punk there was bands like Eight Six Nicks who used to appear in uh, New Crimes quite a lot. They were very good. Well, one of the members of Eight Six Nicks was, you know, one of the zine editors with me in the early days. Um, so many yeah. bands really and you think what what, what behind them all yeah there's another there's another book there uh 
to be written. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, there, there, there's something I could talk about, but we might run run out of time on that one. There was an idea that, sure. that came up. But I think Cynics, by the way, is not with a C, if I've read your book correctly. It's with an S. That's right. Well, yeah. I, I just, S-Y-N-I-X. Right, because bands didn't spell their names uh, the proper way. I think we got Slade to blame for a lot of that. Um, Alan, in Coventry, um, we talked about the shadow cast by 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 a certain label. Um, but what would what were the bands that you were following and writing about? So there was a huge variety of different bands which were in Coventry. So I think, like as Graham said, you know, there were, there were reggae bands, there were punk bands like Criminal Class and Squad and stuff like that. Some of which rose, just, you know, they 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 bubbled out a bit out of the local scene. Um, Alice and Gaza was one that I, I like, which were from Nuneaton. Very kind of radical sound um, for the time. They they changed con- continually. Um, and they did have records come out and show red records, but they never really played them. So when you went to see them, you'd, the record would have just come out and they wouldn't play any tracks off it. They'd be playing stuff off the next one because they had this thing of never looking back and they, they just always looked forward. So that was good. There was a band, a band called God's Toys who who supported Adam and the Ants on, on, on tour and appeared to be about to break big, but for some reason just, just didn't. They just seemed to run out of steam right at the point when they, they shouldn't have really. Um, but, but they were, they were, they were quite weird and, and, and arty really. Um, so a, a lot of the bands, I, I think there was a power punk band called the Wild Boys, um, who who uh, were, were were great live band, probably one of the best best live bands locally, but it was it was a real eclectic mix, and it wasn't what you'd expect coming from from such a kind of grim kind of industrial type of uh, environment. You'd expect it to be aggressive punk stuff by and large, but it actually wasn't. There was a band called The Urge as well, which was also very very um, kind of electronic almost. And of course, um, there was Attrition, which was a band which was formed by uh, Martin Bose, who was the editor of the first Coventry fans in Alternative Sounds, and I was very good friends with and closely involved with that as well. You know, talking of uh, of the records, the Sent from Coventry album uh, was a was quite a big deal on on the scene. Was it like like nationally? There were a lot of these local compilations. Was it was it was it relevant in Coventry? Um, yes, again, that was that was kind of put together with Cherry Red by by Martin Bowes, who 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 ran Alternative Sounds, and but all of the local bands that were on there. That's really is a definitive statement, I would say, of what that sound was at, at, at the time. Um, I think the recording could probably, in hindsight, have been a bit better. It was a bit thin sounding, really. It, 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 it lacked a lot of the oomph that you actually got from the bands live. So it would have been nicer to try and capture that live sound a bit more. But apart from that band, God's Toys, who were holding out for the big record deal that never came and refused to go on it, which was a shame, really, because it meant that you missed, you missed that. I think it, it gave a really good kind of kind of picture of the, of the different flavours of, 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 of what was going on at the time. And then um, people were, were, were doing, you know, putting their own singles out. And there, there was there was tape tape uh, labels as well, like my compilation tape, and I know Graham put out some new new criminals tapes as well with with, with various things on there. I think stressful on one of those. Um, so. So yeah, I think the having the, a compilation of a particular city was a thing at the time, wasn't it? There was different, yeah, different it was. ones that kind Norwich. of sum it up. Not Norwich, a fine city, I think they called it. Um, and there was one from Bristol. There was one, you know, there's different ones from different areas. And those, 
I, I think do capture the differences in the local scenes because it's definitely a sound to some towns, probably Coventry less so, but for some towns it definitely had a a, a sound, um, and, and that reflected the yeah. bands that did break out as well. Yeah, and Sheffield one as well. I get warm. I get a warm, fuzzy feeling when I mention those. And, and sort of talking that, we're going to run out of time. We've only got a few minutes left. Okay. I would, I would love to to just. Uh, Get a sense of it's. It's great for us to be nerdy, and hopefully, hopefully, people who listen to this, you know, they're they're, they're like, oh, I think I remember that group, and this brings me back. But uh, just let's talk generally about what are some of the most fun and also like difficult moments of running a fanzine back in the day, and then maybe uh, I'll bring us back up to speed on the books that you've just put out. And um, you know, I look back on, I look back on it, you know, generally fondly. But when I think about certain aspects of putting a fanzine together, I'm like, God, I, I'm amazed I didn't give up. Um, what you know, what are your ups and downs? I think the, the, the down for me was probably trying to actually sell them in, in you know, a gig. I hated that because I'm not a salesman at all. And, uh, you know, I, it was good fun selling them through the post because, you you know, people would exchange letters. And that, that thing where you'd send everyone a stamped dress envelope with soap on it, you know, and like everyone was soaked with stamp. Remember that? <laughs> <laughs> so that you could reuse the letter, you know. <laughs> like, um but yeah, I think actually directly selling was probably the, uh, you know, the down for me. Um, the up, I guess, was just the fun of the whole thing. The number of people you met um, all over, you know, all over the world eventually, you know, all over the country, getting to know people like Alan, people like yourself, Tony. It, it just suddenly struck me as we were talking. It's the first time, even though I've kind of known you for about 40 years, both of you, first time we've ever actually spoken. It's great, the, isn't yeah. it? It's the one, <laughs> wonders right of the world the moving day. moving forwards. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I kind of had no idea what you what you kind of looked like until relatively recently, you know, because you never see a picture of anyone. Uh, so. it's, it's, I, I mean, we've, we've got to embrace uh, technology. You know, we, we, we had the technology at the time. <laughs> it was photocopying. It was relatively new. There was photocopy art. Absolutely, so yeah. I, I'm, I'm all for like just, you know, you just stay, stay relevant and use whatever's uh, the tools at hand. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you, you hit on on the good and the bad there, Alan. Um, yeah, so I, I, I think I'd, I would I would echo what what Graham said really that that the uh, the, the ups are the people that the connections that you make. Uh, I think certainly for me, it was a chance to kind of express yourself without being censored as well. Um, so uh, and, and that's that, 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 that's it's both an up and a down because one of my issues. Um, I, I wanted to just have a picture of a, a piece of body art on the front with no title at all, but it was nude body art, and the printer said we're not printing that, you know, and um, because it was it was a, a community printers, and they felt it was terribly sexist. They didn't really understand art, I don't think, because the National Gallery would have nothing in it if, if you took that attitude. And of course, the record shops, which I was selling in, some of which were like Virgin and HMV, they wouldn't sell it either. So, so, but that that kind of had a positive in that it meant I printed a brown paper bag for it to go in as a plain brown wrapper edition, which was a very difficult thing to print. Screen printing on, on on brown paper bags is not is not easy, um, but it, it it meant that it kind of kind of pushed me into doing that. On the downside, I think selling a gig's quite tricky, and I also sometimes with the cash flow was quite extended as well because it took you a long time to get money back from distributors when you're posting things out to them. So I had to go around and try and sell it around city centre pubs and try and sell it. And I was a very scrawny, blue-haired punk rocker. And these were like, you know, violent city centre pubs in the early 80s. This was like 
kamikaze kind of selling really um, i did manage to survive obviously i'm still here but um how I'll, I'll never know i think they they took pity on me probably rather than just punch my lights out but i i saw you write about that in your books i have read the books and i i was amazed i did not have that much audacity graham i'm halfway with you on that it would either go very well or very badly at gigs yeah, either either people would be like, "Oh, great, new issue of jamming," and and I'd like empty out my sports bag and fill it with lo- loose change, or people would you know take one look and tell me to piss off. I mean, it did, there didn't seem to be generally a lot a lot of middle ground there. Um, for the books that you wrote, how many fa- uh, for other fanzine editors, or you know, in your case, Graham, I guess just call it alternative publication editors or zines in some way, did you interview for for each of your books? Um, I think it was about twenty-five, something like that. So a good, a good span. It's I a think. fair few. It's a fair few. What about what about you? Yeah. Uh, for me, it was it was less because I didn't try, I didn't manage to track down all of them. Um, so I just managed to track down some of the main ones. But it took me a few years because some of them moved to Australia and other countries. Um, but Facebook's a great thing for that because there's always somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody, and you can get them eventually. Um, so that was about ten of the what I thought would were the kind of prime movers and reasonably in depth interviews with. With, with those and then if there's any of us i just managed to get maybe one or two words on an email with i would just integrate those in into the actual kind of uh piece i wrote on individual fanzines as well so probably 10 or 12 something like that maximum i guess i should also ask um and, and confirm that both these books in fanzine tradition are they both self-published um uh, m- mine isn't no it's on a, a label called fourth dimension which is a record label that's got a publishing wing um, and that's based out of Krakow. So they, they actually probably sew those for me. Um, but you can get them fantastic. from me, of course. That helps. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. no, that's fantastic to have somebody else take on the printing yeah. bills. What about you, Graham? Um, yeah, mine was completely self-published. Um, it was going to be done with a local gallery and local art, you know, without going too much into it. But it was going to be a kind of a bigger project traditionally. But then kind of COVID hit and all the Arts Council funding got cut and blah, blah, blah. And so I just kind of went for a crowdfunder in the end, and uh, which, uh, you know, I could talk about the ups and downs of that. We haven't really got time now. But, um, yeah, that was an adventure in itself, an adventure into reality there. So, um, yeah, it was crowdfunded. And so right. They're both. Uh, yeah. And go, I go ahead. I was going to say, you know, in a way, it's just kind of, doing what I've always done. It's in the same tradition of, you know, doing a fanzine 40 years ago and really, you know, the production values are probably a little bit up, well, a lot up. I think certainly for the eventuality books, the the guy that runs Fourth Dimension is a guy called Rich Show, who ran Grim Humor fanzine. So I knew him from back in the day. So it's it's all kind of, as you say, you know, connections, networks that persist over the years and are still, they're still bearing fruit today. You know, we're still talking, we're still doing stuff, we're still active. I think it's also uh, we can't help ourselves. We're just who we are, yeah. and we keep doing this. And it's like me but doing, doing, doing like the, what we're doing right now is essentially a, um, uh, uh, it's essentially a fanzine. I mean, it's being said podcasts are the new fanzines. It's like you just, you know, you kind of can't help yourself just putting something together and and doing it. I'm I'm very grateful to you both for putting these books out. Um, I I. I, I do think they must have been labors of love and uh, uh, the, the, the world is better for having them and not just having books about, uh, you know, uh, fanzines in general um, or compilations of essential fanzines. I mean, they're really, really, really fascinating histories. And 
rather than most of so many people listen to podcasts on the go rather than ask right now where you can get them i want to encourage everybody who's listening just like please take a moment look at your phone your computer in the show notes i'm going to have actual links to where you can buy them who published them um how to find alan how to find graham uh because you know it's uh it's 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 great parts of history. I know publishing is a little easier these days. The zines are a little easier. Um, my sense is they're still alive, and I think that might be a way way for us to to, to go out. I mean, Graham, you've kind of proved that by bringing your book completely up to date. With um, you know, the topics are wider; they're not just music, but you've you've proven that. That I think alternative culture is always going to be alive. I agree with your general point, Alan. That that good times people do less, but uh, we're not in good times right now. So maybe there'll be more zines as as a result of that. I just think it's all you know, it's all healthy. It's never going to be what it, the same thing it was because it shouldn't be. Things should be produced differently and making use of technology that's available. I think that's right. Yeah, uh, uh, new technology enabled us to produce fanzines in the first place without photocopiers there would be no no punk fanzines you know we wouldn't be able to have afforded to get them printed you know offset lifo printings quite a big thing to, to start out doing so the fanzines came along at the same time as cheap photocopier technology emerged and and i think that that made a big difference and now we now we're doing it online we can reach across the oceans and talk to each other and we, we can promote things we, we should definitely use that as well so, so yeah, so, so scenes have changed their format. They're no longer scrappy, photocopied, stapled things. And I don't, I don't think they can go back to that, but uh, they're now also printed a bit glossier, I guess. Um, but they still got that creativity at the heart of them, which is what matters. Feel the same way, Graham? Yeah, I'd, uh, I'd echo that. Definitely, yeah. I think there's kind of an irony as well that in that we were trying to do the best we could with kind of, crappy technology that was available to us and now you get people trying to kind of almost doing desktop publishing stuff or you know like trying to replicate that kind of look you know it's almost like people are bringing out records and they're kind of deliberately putting on you know vinyl effects like scratchy sounds and things like that and people are kind of paying to add the things that we were trying to yeah. do anything to get rid of back in the day and I think it's strange I, I did include in, okay. uh, something in my book about the techniques we had to use some of which were, were painfully hard things to things to do but um actually now replicated in software so so you, but people still want that they want that look they want that that blobby yeah, jumble well, printing yeah. set look you know which we got using using a blobby jumble printing set but yeah. now, they're, now they're doing it in in the software <laughs> And the first time, I know we've got to wrap up, but the first time I met um, Lou Williams, who's doing the kind of girlzine stuff now, you know, that I was talking about. And first time when I was introduced to her, I was going, oh, you used to use like, you know, Gestetna juice and coach. That must have been so it's cool. using that. Oh, it was awful. Bloody awful, you know. Like, <laughs> Horrible <things. laughs> you know, like, like, Yeah, but going, oh, it must be so cool using that technology. No. We hated it. <laughs> it was it was very it was it was very 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 uncle. I I agree. Um, uh, listen, it's been wonderful talking talking with you both. And you're right. I mean, I don't recall. I I I, I wouldn't be surprised if I met Alan on along the way. But uh, Alan, I didn't get to Coventry, so it can't have been there. Yeah. I, I, you know, well, are you still in Sinclair Road, by the way? For oh. many, 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 many years, just down the road from Nomis, where you, you were based out of there. Yeah, so, when we got so big. We, we undoubtedly passed in the street many times, yeah. maybe not realised it. It's funny, when I look at pictures of you from your book, Alan, you just look like 
so many people i mean it's like a look it's it's the look of the punky new wave diy little bit of everything i'm the i'm the guy who's going to come into your pub and try and sell you copies of my uh, of my fanzine you just have that look about you um I, everybody it's tales from the ghost town the coventry punk fanzine revolution 1979 to 85 there is also a lovely adventures in reality the complete collection which i really like because it feels coherent in a way that when I did the jamming book, it didn't feel coherent because we developed so much. And uh, the other one, Southend on Zine, 50 years of voices and stories from Southend's underground and alternative press. Uh, that one's compiled by, by Graham Burnett. Uh, and uh, the Coventry Tales from the Ghost Town by Alan Ryder. This has been like great fun. Um, the wonders of technology. And uh, yeah, may, may you forever be DIY. Uh, great stuff. So there you go, two more old folk like myself who just can't help putting together communication forms, publications, compilations, compendiums. Thank you, Alan, for what you've done. Thank you, Graham, for what you've done. This is actually really important work, as Alan pointed out during the interview. Uh, the fanzines fade. The pub publishers pass away. That's uh, inevitable. And putting them in book form even putting them in digital form really really helps uh preserve them for posterity um, and whatever you might think about the way the world changes you know maybe some of us feel it's like nice to just leave a little note behind <laughs> hey here's what we were doing when we were alive so obviously i'm going to put in links uh, in what we call the show notes that's whatever's on your phone that you don't look at or your computer that has all the details about this show for where you can buy both those books but because i know you're going to be lazy like that uh, for Alan's two books, you can go to adventuresinreality.bigcartel.com. And for Graham's book, you can go to spiralseed.co.uk forward slash product forward slash Southend on Zine. Though I think the Southend on Zine has dashes, hyphens between those words. So again, you know. At least you've got a sense of what to look for. And, uh, you know, Graham's, I noticed, put out a, a gardening fanzine recently. Alan's still doing his music, has his Adventures in Reality book, as well as Tales from the Ghost Town. Great stuff all around. The next episode, I'm not going to tell you exactly who's going to be on the, uh, next because uh, because I'm not. And I just would invite you to come back in the middle of March if you are listening kind of chronologically. And I'd also invite you to dig back through the first 10 episodes if you didn't hear them. Uh, while they are kind of concerned with jamming, there's a lot there to do with other fanzines. A lot of the people I spoke to were just part of the scene. A lot of former contributors did their own fanzines. Uh, so I think they, yeah, I think they got merit. Hopefully you do too. And if you want to support this podcast in any way, shape, or form, whether you're interested in, um, you know, some form of like sponsorship ads, or you just want to like chip in and buy us a coffee, there are ways to do so. You can get in touch. You can find us uh, links again in the show notes. And while I have your attention on that level, the usual requests, please, if you haven't already, subscribe, like, rate, review. And hey, we'll see you next month. Cheers. Do you want to buy a copy of Jamming?